You're listening to a press conference from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health with Dr. Paul Bittinger, Vice Chair for Emergency Preparedness in the Department of Emergency Medicine at Massachusetts General Hospital and Medical Director for Emergency Preparedness at the hospital and at Partners Healthcare. This call was recorded at 11 a.m. Eastern Time on Tuesday, May 26th. Good morning to everyone. Uh, nice to uh, virtually connect with you all again. Um, so uh, across the Mass General Brigham uh, healthcare system, um, we, we saw our peak of hospitalizations uh, in the third week of April, uh, roughly uh, April 22nd and, and 23rd, uh, depending on whether or not you count um, overall numbers of admissions or intensive care unit admissions, the peaks were within one day uh, of one another. Uh, but since that time, uh, we have been seeing uh, really a linear decrease in the number of patients uh, across all of our hospitals. Um, the pace of decrease is somewhat slower than the pace of ramp up, uh, which is actually consistent with what we've seen in other areas of the globe that were uh, hit earlier than us, uh, notably Italy. Uh, but thankfully, the number is coming down. Uh, and at present, uh, we still have about 300 patients uh, across Mass General Brigham hospitals uh, who are still in the hospital. Uh, with about 100 of those patients uh, still in the intensive care unit. Um, it is taking uh, a while for those intensive care unit numbers in particular to come down. Uh, many of the patients with uh, critical illness from COVID um, have very long length, lengths of stay in the intensive care unit. Um, and therefore, uh, those numbers uh, are, are uh, trending down more slowly than the overall number of, of patients in the hospital. Uh, we are still seeing some new patients with COVID, but that rate of presentations uh, is decreasing. Uh, we're seeing increasing rates of presentations uh, of patients with other illnesses uh, in our emergency departments, uh, specifically general care, uh, medical kinds of uh, issues. Um, and as well, uh, we have submitted our uh, form for recovery, the attestation form to the state that is required as part of the governor's recovery plan uh, last week uh, and are starting to see uh, patients uh, booking appointments uh, for care that is urgent uh, and meets the state's definition, uh, such as uh, pediatric well-child visits, vaccination visits, um, uh, screening procedures uh, for uh, patients at high risk uh, and, and others. Um, and this comes in the background of uh, an increased uh, uh, overall volume of uh, uh, no longer deferrable procedures. So uh, what that means is, is that uh, at the beginning of the shutdown, uh, there were some uh, medical procedures covered by the governor's order that were elective at the time that were deferrable. And the more time passed, uh, there were a number of patients uh, who could no longer uh, defer that care. And so that volume has been uh, increasing as well. Overall, uh, we are uh, cautiously optimistic that we will be able to continue to uh, increase volume. Um, obviously, the state guidance uh, requires us to make sure we have surge capacity in case there were to be another wave of illness. Uh, and everyone is uh, cautious, uh, given uh, the fact that we are gradually reopening um, uh, parts of the Commonwealth. Um, we ourselves are monitoring uh, emergency department uh, presentations of patients with COVID, hospital admissions, and ICU admissions. Uh, of patients with COVID as, as some of our earliest uh, indicators in the healthcare system that there could be another surge. And so far we have not seen any evidence of that, but of course uh, it's, it's early. 
uh, we definitely uh, are, are encouraged by the cautious approach. Um, and uh, we are certainly very much eager uh, to be able to deliver healthcare uh, for everyone who needs it. Um, there is, as most all of you are aware, there's a, a body of evidence uh, that shows that a number of people have deferred healthcare longer than they should. Uh, and, and what we really wanna do is prevent any additional adverse consequences uh, of, uh, from illness um, if people have been staying away from the healthcare system. So I'll stop there uh, and happy to answer questions. Great, thank you, Dr. Bittinger. Um, looks like our first question. Thank you, Paul. Uh, uh, first, I want to clear something up. Is the G in your name hard or soft? <laughs> it's actually <laughs> silent. I say Bittinger, uh, but that, that's Bittinger. Just... Oh, okay. There's no G. My, apo okay. My apologies, then. No, it's, it's, no, no, it's no, pretty... every... Everyone, Everyone pronounces it differently and it's really not something that bothers me. So that's all. No, it just matters for radio. That's all. Okay. <laughs> and um, so you've been talking about, you've been, we're looking forward and you're talking about the current state of affairs, but I'd like to ask you to just very briefly look back and um, talk about, you know, there's, there are a lot of very depressing analyses about how poorly America has done in general handling this pandemic. Can you give a bit of a glass half full analysis about, even if it's just local, about what we have done well, what we've learned from this bout with the virus and what you expect us to do better next time? Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, obviously uh, the, the pandemic is a tragedy and, and there's no way to to deny that, but there have been good things that, that have come out of this. I, I think on a global scale, the pace of sharing of scientific information uh, is unlike anything we've ever seen. Uh, the fact that new lessons are learned, reviewed, published, shared, acted on uh, within days to weeks is absolutely extraordinary. Uh, one example uh, is, is what we call awake proning. Proning is when you position someone face down, belly down on, on the bed and it actually improves their oxygenation and breathing. And it's been done uh, for years in some of the tertiary care, uh, intensive care units for patients who are on ventilators, but it was never really considered in patients who are breathing on their own as a way to stave off putting them on a ventilator. Lessons were learned about the effectiveness of awake proning in Italy and, and literally within one to two weeks we're putting being put to use here in Boston, um, which is just extraordinary. Uh, and, and there are lots of other lessons about treatment protocols that have been shared, reviewed, published uh, that fast. And I think that's, that's really amazing. Um, I think the ability of the healthcare system to change um, has also really, really increased. Uh, we put telemedicine protocols, uh, infection control protocols, operational protocols, all into play within days to weeks, uh, which, which would have normally taken months to years. Um, you know, we rolled out systems of having iPads in patients' rooms to help them communicate, telemedicine protocols to let our physicians speak with their patients at home, all of those things within a couple of days. Even our universal masking policy, where we started handing out thousands of masks every single day and restricting access uh, to our hospitals happened on a Friday evening uh, and across many different hospitals, complete retooling of how people come and go from the hospital was turned on literally again within about a day. So the fact that the healthcare system moved faster is encouraging. Um, oftentimes people use uh, an analogy of a battleship that takes miles and miles to turn around uh, applies to healthcare. I think we've become a lot more like small nimble ships that, that can move faster than we ever have before. 
And last thing I'll just say is, is that we've actually cooperated across the healthcare system in ways we never have either. Um, as we were facing a potential surge where we were running out of intensive care unit beds, um, we set up a, a capacity committee across the entire city of Boston, uh, co-chaired by uh, physician leaders from uh, Mass General Brigham, as well as from the Beth Israel Leahy system. Um, and all of the hospitals in the Boston area participated in daily calls, still participate, it's still going on, uh, to make sure that we have access to ICU beds available. We knew where there was capacity. We knew where there might be constrained capacity. Uh, and it, it really was an extraordinary uh, uh, example of collaboration among normally very competitive healthcare systems just to make sure the care was available. Thank you, beautiful. Thanks. Uh, next question. Hi, good morning, sir. <laughs> just a couple questions, if you don't mind. Just first, uh, following up on a, a couple of your colleagues there at the School of Public Health, their comments to the Globe, just talking about there being still a very real possibility of a resurgence or a second wave. Do you? concur with that assessment? I, I think there, there's always the risk of a, a, another wave. Uh, unfortunately, of course, the virus hasn't gone away and we don't have any preventive measures. Uh, the science that we have available uh, suggests that uh, the number of infections in the community uh, is not high enough to give us the herd immunity that, that I think everyone's pretty familiar with now that would decrease virus transmission. Um, really what it is, it, it's about making sure that we keep the opportunities for the virus to spread uh, to, to be as few as possible. Uh, and I think there are a lot of uh, measures in place that were not in place before, before the shutdown. We have essentially a, a universal masking recommendation uh, that went in public. Uh, people are wearing face coverings, which really does decrease uh, disease transmission, we've now learned. Uh, people are more wary of social distancing. They're much more aware uh, of the uh, need not to touch their face and, and to wash their hands. And, and definitely the, the opening uh, of society is going gradually. Uh, so, so certainly all of those things uh, make me cautiously hopeful uh, that we will not see a significant wave uh, here in Massachusetts. Um, definitely, I think the fewer restrictions there are on uh, opening, uh, the greater the chance there is uh, of a second wave. Uh, because again, the virus is, is very much still out there uh, and we need to remain cautious and, and vigilant. Um, I, I think um, time will tell, uh, but, but I, I think that the approach of going slowly and monitoring data, such as monitoring new cases, is definitely the right approach. So, so as we do see the, the reopening process start to unfold there, I mean, are, are there any sort of inherent threats that, that that does pose though as we go along the way? Sure, I think uh, the, the risk obviously is is that more contact between people is, is potentially more opportunities for virus transmission. Uh, the hope is to make the pace of reopening uh, appropriate for the decrease in the amount of virus in the community. If, if one uh, line that's going up, which is the opening, uh, doesn't outpace the line that's going down, which is how much virus there is in the community, then I think we can avoid a major second wave. Uh, one of the greatest challenges with that is, is just how delayed the signal is uh, between the action and the data. What I mean by that is uh, I mentioned that emergency department visits, uh, diagnosis of new cases in hospitalized patients and ICU patients, those are really some of the most important indicators. But those lag typically by a, a week to two weeks after any sort of action happens at, at a societal level. So it's a little bit like driving your car on the highway where you push on the gas or the brake 
but it takes 20 or 30 seconds before the change gets into effect. It makes it really hard to drive uh, when the, the delay between action and consequences is so significant. So just means we have to watch that data incredibly closely. It's another argument for going slowly. Uh, do you have a follow up? Yeah, just one more if you don't mind there. So just moving forward though, would, would your emphasis kind of be along the lines of what the governor has been talking about, just kind of going on what you were just saying with the with the, the tracing and the testing, trying to, to yield those real-time results? Yeah, I, I think it, it's really a combination of things. I think, again, going slowly and making sure that the, the uh, testing data uh, as well as the hospitalization data um, doesn't uh, suggest we're going too fast is exactly the right approach. Uh, again, testing can be swayed a bit by uh, how many people we're testing, which communities. So those numbers uh, sometimes do and sometimes don't reflect what uh, is going on in the community in terms of disease prevalence. But overall, the number of hospitalizations, especially the number of ICU admissions, uh, that really does reflect community prevalence pretty well. Uh, so it's really important data. I, I think in terms of contact tracing and just overall more testing, that's part of how we de decrease the overall amount of disease in the community. So that's sort of a direct intervention for how we decrease disease transmission with testing and contact tracing. So I think both are important. We should be as aggressive as possible with testing and contact tracing. We should be somewhat measured uh, in how uh, slowly we reopen just to make sure we don't go too fast. And then just finally, is it is it your view, uh, just looking at the reopening process going from phase to phase, I mean, is it is it reasonable to expect that would be a seamless transition or do you envision there being some setbacks along the way? I think this is unprecedented. Uh, we've never done anything like this before as, as a society, certainly not uh, since the, the pandemic of 1918. Uh, so, so I think it's probably inevitable there will be some lessons learned. There have been so many lessons learned already along the way. Uh, my hope uh, is, is that we'll continue to be really flexible both in the healthcare system, but, but at a public health and policy level that as new data comes in that says what either is safe or isn't safe that we, act, we react quickly. Thank you very much, sir. Thanks. Next question. Hi, Paul, thanks for, thanks for doing this. Um, I wanted to back up to um, some of the things you said earlier about um, the rapid pace of change in the healthcare system, uh, things like uh, everything from sharing scientific data to immediately getting masks on everybody. I, I wonder as we look ahead, um, you know, clearly this uh, pandemic has had a large effect on society broadly. What changes do you see being permanent? I, I think probably the, the one that most obviously comes to mind is, is telemedicine. Uh, I, I think people have been working for years, probably really fair to say decades, uh, on telemedicine uh, it, it, when it's appropriate uh, for uh, patients not to have to come to the hospital, uh, but they can see their doctor remotely. And uh, the pandemic forced a lot of that on us, but, but both on the patient and on the provider side, there's been a ton of satisfaction that that works. And, you know, you can understand uh, it, as a patient when you don't want to have to come into the hospital to park to wait to, to go through all of those processes that it's more convenient. Uh, and uh, certainly, uh, I, I think there are parts of telemedicine that are going to stay, uh, just like technology has changed so many other aspects of our lives. I, I think there will be other parts of this as, as well. I think healthcare systems, uh, seeing now how fast they can change, will probably start trying to bake this into their leadership and organizational systems. 
you know, my world uh, is one of disaster preparedness where we build systems to react quickly when there's an immediate threat in front of us. Uh, but I think there's a lot that, that people are starting to think about that is applicable to normal operations where uh, we, we're not going to be in crisis mode all the time, uh, but we are probably going to try and preserve those lessons of how we react and how we act uh, quickly um, so that we're more nimble uh, organizations overall. Very good. Thank you. Next question. Thank you. Actually, just to build on Al's question, so what, what do you think will be easier next surge because of what was done this surge? And then going back to my original question also, you talked about, and I, I asked you to go positive and you did in terms of things that have gone right, but could you also highlight a couple of things that um, we're not gonna do that again? Yeah. <laughs> so, so I think probably I'll start with that because I, I think that there, that is really important. I think, you know, as we headed into the pandemic uh, peak, uh, and of course we're still in the pandemic, but as we were heading towards the peak, uh, we weren't certain how big it was gonna be and we weren't really certain how we were going to do a lot of the things that were required of us, meaning surge to create all this new intensive care unit capacity, protect our patients, protect our staff, make sure we didn't see uh, excess disease transmission uh, in hospitals specifically. And, what we've learned uh, is, is that we are really good at preventing disease transmission, uh, that we know how to take care of COVID patients safely, and we know what the personal protective equipment is for our nurses, for our respiratory therapists, for our physicians, for others, um, and, and we know how to configure the, the care space. So when we were heading into this, uh, we basically pulled back to the core minimum of what we thought we could do as a healthcare system, and that meant canceling an awful lot of elective and ambulatory uh, procedures, uh, visits, uh, others, in order to to make sure that we we created as much uh, COVID capacity as we could. I, I think uh, if we see significant uh, additional surges of COVID, uh, we hopefully don't need to pull back in all of these areas to the same degree. I think we know how to deliver ambulatory care safely in the setting of COVID now, uh, and I think it's really important for patients to see their doctors. Uh, obviously, especially pediatric patients for vaccines and well child visits, but really so much, uh, you know, patients with heart failure, patients with diabetes, they need to see their doctors regularly. And I don't think we'll have to pull back to the same degree uh, if we see uh, another, um, another surge. I think also, you know, we do have effective infection control programs in place now. So we know that putting masks on all of our staff, all our visitors, all our patients, uh, really helps to decrease uh, disease transmission. We know how to clean, how to operate healthcare uh, uh, facilities, and really healthcare facilities are very safe places to receive care now, uh, and, and people should have a lot of reassurance that uh, based on all of the lessons we've been learning over the last couple of months, uh, we know how to deliver care both to patients with COVID and patients without COVID. Thank you. What about um, closing down earlier, which it seems has made just a, a huge difference. Just a matter of days can make a great big difference in various localities, right? Yeah, it, absolutely. And, and I think it, there, there are two things about that. You know, hindsight, of course, uh, is twenty twenty, and and knowing what was ahead of us, I, I think uh, everyone would would love to have uh, closed down earlier uh, because that's that's why we do it is is to prevent disease transmission. Um, I, I think if, if you can picture um, 
the epidemic curves that we've all seen, they're kind of slowly rising at the beginning for the first several days to weeks before they really accelerate and become very steep. Um, and that's the challenge is knowing whether the curve really will accelerate and, and, and become so steep or not. Um, I think it will be the challenge still going forward for looking for additional waves um, is, is that we're not going to see a big steep rise in cases early uh, because that's not how the disease transmission works. It means we have to look for very subtle signals uh, in the data so that if indeed we have to slow the pace of opening or, or in fact go backwards, um, we have to pay attention to relatively small numbers. Uh, by the time we see big numbers, uh, the, 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 the decision will be too late. Yeah. And so uh, last question and just concretely about Mass General Brigham. So what's that signal that you'll be looking for in the in the weeks to come? How small is like what is it completely? Yeah. So so it's it's a couple of things. Uh, we still even now are comparing ourselves to those that went ahead of us, uh, meaning mostly the northern Italian experience. But uh, as, as I might have mentioned uh, before, we've been uh, we have a, a healthcare systems engineering modeling group looks at data from China, from elsewhere in Europe, uh, elsewhere in the world, but, but really have focused a lot on the Italian uh, experience, both, uh, both because of uh, relevance as well as the quality of data that we have to use. Mm -hmm. And we have been decreasing on a pace uh, similar to theirs. Mm -hmm. I think if we were to fall off of that line, if we were to slow down or look like we're increasing, clearly that's a problem. Uh, there are in pockets uh, of, of Italy, pockets of, of the globe, uh, areas where cases have started to rise again. Uh, and, and what we do is, again, just try and look at the, the shape of that curve so that if it looks like we're um, starting to look like a place that, that had a resurgence that, that we identified early. I, I can't give you a number in terms of exact numbers of cases or, or percentages, uh, but it's really how we compare to those that are weeks to, to month uh, ahead of us. Um, and so far, thankfully, we're not seeing anything that looks like that. Great, thank you. Just real quickly, I'm going to kind of connect a few things here. So, Kara's asking about the stuff that went well, stuff that didn't go well, and I have a question for you: What don't we know that you wish we did know about the pandemic? Um, I think one of the most fundamental questions we don't know yet uh, is whether prior infection gives you immunity. Uh, there is uh, so much talk uh, about serology, about the blood tests and whether you have immunoglobulin or antibody uh, against, the, against the virus. Um, it is intuitive to us uh, that uh, prior infection will give you immunity, but we don't know that. Um, and therefore, the guidance that we give to people who've been previously infected uh, or who might have positive serology, that, um, that guidance is really on hold until we have a better sense uh, of what that means. Um, if indeed it turns out that being infected gives you immunity, then we really want to know how long it, it gives you immunity for. Uh, immunity is not always lifelong. Uh, sometimes it's only for a year or two. Um, and so I think we really need to know that because that really affects how we think about populations um, and, uh, and the overall um, ability of, of a population to withstand further, uh, further waves. Last thing I'd just say is, is we really, really uh, are looking for more guidance on treatment. Um, as I had, had said before, there's an amazing amount of scientific uh, sharing of knowledge right now, um, but 
sometimes uh, it just takes time uh, to, to properly learn lessons. Um, if you try and share data too early uh, before the case numbers, before the analysis, before the outcomes are really known, uh, you can end up making bad decisions clinically. So we, we just needed some time to let these clinical trials pan out, to analyze the data, to share the lessons. Uh, but certainly all of us are eager to, eager to learn uh, what is the best clinical care for COVID patients that uh, saves the most lives. Okay, thank you. Next question. Uh, I hope you haven't covered this already, but I was just wondering if you could, um, I was trying to do a story today on the, um, now that every, we're all reopening again, could you just talk about the likelihood of a, uh, of a second wave? I mean, people are excited to be back out, and I think a lot of people may not be thinking about it, but what is the likelihood of a second wave? Um, when is that likely to happen? And, and for those maybe who, who may not know, um, the Spanish flu in 1918, my understanding there was a second wave that was even larger than the first wave. So maybe you could hit on some of those points, please. Sure. Yeah, no, thanks. I, we, we did talk a little bit. I'm happy to, to revisit because I think there, there are a couple more things we can, can talk about. You know, one of the things that, that was uh, postulated uh, about the second wave of the Spanish flu uh, was that there was genetic change in the virus uh, that both changed how it was transmitted from person to person as well as uh, the degree of illness uh, that it caused. Uh, and so one of the uh, things that's been more reassuring to date is that there has not been that kind of genetic alteration to the virus noted uh, by anyone who's studying it. So uh, certainly we're on guard uh, for that possibility. Viruses mutate, that's what they do, they change uh, always. Um, but uh, in terms of a large second wave caused by a, a different uh, virus that, that causes worse illness so far, we have not seen that. Um, I, you know, I absolutely understand uh, why everyone's eager to get back to normal. I, I feel the same way myself, of course. Uh, but, but I think that the point is probably uh, more important. People sometimes think about waves uh, like snowstorms, like, like once the storm is passed, uh, you can kind of go outside and, and play for a while until the next one comes back. And that, that's really not the way that pandemics work. The virus is still out there. Uh, and and it, it, it's still snowing, if I can uh, probably overuse that analogy. Um, the, the point is, is that we have to decrease the opportunity for the virus to be transmitted from person to person. So um, just because we're seeing improvement does not mean that the threat has gone away. Uh, we have to be vigilant. We have to learn the lessons we've already learned about masking, about distance, uh, about decreased numbers of, of interactions with other people. Um, and even though people want to go back to the way it was before uh, we had COVID, that's just not possible right now. And so what we have to do is accept the reality that, that the way we interact with one another has to be changed uh, for quite some time. We, we can interact together more safely uh, and more if we do it slowly. And, and if we rush too quickly or if we think that the first wave is passing and therefore it's safe until the next wave comes, that's really not the right way to look at it. The right way uh, is to say we're decreasing, we, we ourselves are, are decreasing that first wave and we need to keep acting that way um, or at least persist with some of our behavior modifications so that we don't see that major second wave because a lot of that frankly is under our control, not so much the virus. 
if, if I could follow up, yep. um, just what, uh, and so again, what, what is the likelihood that well, we could um, have a second wave? <clears throat> when would it be? And even if we did everything correctly, uh, could we still be vulnerable to a second wave <clears throat> based on what happens, for example, in other states? Yes. Uh, so, so all of our behavior affects one another. Uh, and I think uh, as we are learning more and more about how the first wave of COVID spread across the country, uh, the risk of travel uh, shows how interconnected we are. Uh, so I think definitely if there are increasing numbers in other states, and, and there are a number of uh, states in the United States that actually have increasing numbers right now, um, that, that could potentially affect us here uh, in New England, no question. Um, I, I think uh, when a second wave could happen um, is really, um, uh, there, there are several cases in which that could play out. Um, it could happen sooner if we reopen too fast uh, and people start interacting with one another uh, without masks, without appropriate distance uh, in, in too significant numbers. Uh, but I think we'll face another challenge in the fall as well uh, when we probably have more people going to school, more people traveling, uh, potentially for uh, college. Again, kids may be back in elementary or secondary school. Um, and then ultimately, as it gets cold, uh, as we're all indoors more uh, together uh, in, in common spaces. So unfortunately, there are uh, several challenges ahead um, in terms of either the pace of reopening or real logistical uh, uh, concerns that will happen in the fall and winter. So I think the chance of a second wave is, is pretty significant. Hopefully we'll keep that wave small and, and that's the way we'll do it is by looking at the data available to us about the fact that, that we're not decreasing, but we're increasing. And then we take the appropriate action uh, across the whole Commonwealth. Okay, thank you. Are you all set then? Um, let's see. So. So it, so it sounds like we really have to, um, I just, 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 just to wrap up, uh, with really without any kind of vaccine, it sounds like this is just, we just have to live with the fact that this is gonna be with us for a while until we get a vaccine that's widely disseminated. That, that's exactly right. And, and you know, I know everyone is, is overusing the phrase new normal, but I think unfortunately that's exactly what it is, is um, we, we have to accept the fact that some of these actions, some of these restrictions are part of how we all keep each other safe. Uh, and exactly as you said, until we have a vaccine and frankly, until it is widely uh, distributed uh, and, and, uh, um, and administered to, to large populations, um, we're gonna be vulnerable to further outbreaks of, of COVID. And the very last question I'll ask is, if there was an, another uh, significant uh, second wave, that would obviously lead to, uh, we have to go back to another lockdown situation uh, or something. I, I, yes, I, I think, you know, I think it would be a modified version, I think, of what we've been through. Um, uh, as I mentioned that we're, lear we're learning an awful lot of lessons on the healthcare side. I think for second waves, uh, we won't hopefully have to shut down the healthcare system uh, quite as extensively uh, as we did the first time. I think the same will ultimately be true at the business and societal level. I think uh, there's going to be an awful lot of continued study very quickly to try and identify uh, which public health measures were the most effective and really make sure that we prioritize and sustain those 
uh, and then when there are other uh, uh, ways to reopen, when we realize how we can operate businesses or how we can operate um, uh, other parts of society more safely, uh, that we can can support them and, and not have to shut down to the same degree. So it, it's my hope that in future waves, even if we do have to reintroduce some of the measures that, that we've had in the last several months, uh, they won't be quite uh, as as blanket across all of society. We'll, we'll have figured out which are the ones that really work best. Thank you. Uh, next question. Sorry, this is my last question. I <laughs> so um, what is the latest on the extent to which infection control measures in hospitals, and particularly universal masking, stemmed infection? And I, I think it's key, like to what extent can that be extrapolated to the public going back out again? Like how safe can people feel because they're wearing masks at this point? Yeah, I think there, there are lots of people right now trying to work on quantifying that. I, I think uh, as, as everyone is aware, uh, it used to be the, the dogma of infection control uh, that wearing masks in public didn't really change disease transmission, uh, but that was for diseases pre-COVID. And, and now uh, the, the phrase that is, is being used is, is universal source control. Uh, which means that, that we all wear masks to protect each other. Uh, and I think there's still a lot of popular misconception that masks uh, are primarily to protect ourselves. Uh, and they probably do offer a degree of protection, but it's mostly that we wear masks so that if any one of us uh, is infected, uh, we don't infect others around us. It decreases where the, where the droplets go. Uh, and so part of it is, is that it really has to be a community, a societal effort. We have to all buy into this and do this together uh, if we're going to protect each other. Um, we're definitely trying to figure out exactly the degree to which uh, masking decreases transmission, but the, the early uh, signals definitely suggest it helps. Secondly, uh, we really need to figure out um, what kind of masking is helpful. Uh, right now, the guidance uh, is that uh, non-medical uh, people wear some degree of face covering but not necessarily a surgical mask or a medical mask. Uh, and that's, of course, been to preserve uh, availability supply for, for the healthcare setting. Um, there is some study uh, of which, health, uh, which face coverings are more effective than others. Uh, and unfortunately, cloth or improvised face uh, masks are not as effective uh, as medical masks. Uh, but I think we're going to learn an awful lot about what is an effective face mask uh, that hopefully will be um, built into products made for the public and, and um, some recommendations about how, again, as, as a community, we can decrease disease transmission. And, um, and in, the, in Mass General Brigham, are there any latest numbers about, about it? I, I, don't, I don't, I'm sorry, I don't, yeah, I don't have numbers that I can share, uh, but, but we're definitely trying to look at it and, and uh, see, what, see what the numbers and the trends show. Okay, great, thank you. Yeah. So I think if there are no other questions, then I go ahead and wrap up the call. Um, Dr. Binger, do you have any final words you would like to say? Uh, I think, you know, it is, it is um, important to appreciate how many lives uh, have been severely disrupted uh, by um, COVID um, and, um, how how significant uh, those stories are. 
but but there's a lot of good that can come out of this. Hopefully, in the healthcare system, I I honestly think uh, COVID, as tragic as it has been, um, for uh, multiple communities, has also shown a spotlight on health inequality and, and our need to do better uh, for for uh, many communities uh, um, among us. Uh, and so, you know, one way that we can build and improve from what we've been through in COVID is to recognize um, those inequalities and, and to really put special focused effort in, into remedying them. So uh, there, there is good that can come out of tragedy and I hope both in, in society and the way the healthcare system works, but also in the way we treat one another with access to healthcare, um, th there's opportunity. So um, hopefully a, a, a potential positive outlook here as well. This concludes the May 26th press conference.